Well, hello. You know, the moment that we're living in right now can, well, and has been described as fractured, where the possibility of civil discourse among people who disagree feels like it's more and more out of reach all the time. And of course, there's some issues around which believers in Jesus, we will just disagree. Some of them will be theological, some of them will be more political in nature perhaps, and some of these are incredibly important. The part that hurts my pastor's heart, however, is when Christians are divided by issues because they've taken their cues for how to discuss and debate from the culture around us rather than following the Jesus way. A culture that often, as one of my friends reminds me, uh, rewards moral outrage, rejects nuance and careful thinking, or certainly downplays the possibility of it, uh, often works to polarize people around issues and demonizes the other rather than humanizing them. Those are ways of interacting um, really that require resistance. Resistance to that kind of pull in the direction that our, our culture maybe favors or that's easier. And it requires a commitment to patient love. Walter Kim is the director of the National Association of Evangelicals in the U.S., and last month, he published an article where he writes, polarization is like powerful magnets placed throughout our ideological spectrum. They pull us apart and clump us into tribes. We have a hard time breaking away from the magnetic security of being with like-minded people who reinforce our like-mindedness. Efforts to move toward others must labor against that pull. And so in a desire to work against that pull, the National Association of Evangelicals in the U.S., well, they issued a statement that, here's what they say, that focuses on eight broad issues of moral importance that are rooted in biblical convictions, protecting religious freedom, safeguarding the sanctity of life, strengthening families, seeking justice for the poor and vulnerable, preserving human rights, pursuing racial justice, restraining violence, and caring for God's creation. And, and as I read that list, my guess is that something probably happened inside of you. Uh, you probably thought, yeah, that's right, at some points. And then at other points, he said, well, I don't really know about, I want, you know, like, I don't know if I want to emphasize that point. So what's happening here? Well, Kim goes on, these biblical values, and all of them are, by the way, these biblical values unite us across denominational, geographic, ethnic, and partisan divides. Too many, especially young people and people of color, have been alienated by the evangelical Christianity they have seen presented in public in recent years. And they may wonder, rightly, if there is a home for them in evangelicalism. 
we have an opportunity, he writes, to reaffirm with conviction and clarity that our tradition is rooted in fidelity to Christ and His kingdom values. Now, we hear this word from Jesus in John chapter 17. He prays for us, His church, and He prays that we would be unified just as He and the Father are unified, which is the deepest sort of unity possible. Uh, Paul will go right to write Uh, go on, pardon me, to write to the Ephesians that we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Every effort, Paul says. See, I I want us to begin by kind of contrasting the fractured nature with the desire for unity and the challenges that presents for us as, as those who want to follow Jesus because the chapter we look at this morning Acts chapter 15 brings us perhaps to the most important moment of decision-making in the history of the whole church. The chapter begins with a serious disagreement, a sharp dispute, and rigorous debate. Because following Jesus and the Jesus way, it doesn't mean, of course, that there's no place for taking a firm stand. In fact, we need to do that on the issues that really matter. Courage is still a Christian virtue. And I think that one of the most needed things for the church in this moment is that we be clear about what really matters. And today in our text, we are brought into contact with the question of all questions, you might say. And we'll also come to the points that are going to help us navigate our moment in a way that's faithful to Jesus. So pray with me as we begin. Father, open our hearts to hear your voice, to hear the leading of Jesus, to hear how the Spirit is shaping and making us new as we read today. Amen. Uh, So as we begin, I want to just kind of catch us up to speed about where we are in this book, especially if you're maybe new to Summit or just checking us out this morning. We are grateful that you're here. We're studying the book of Acts. It's part two of Luke's two-part series. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts go together. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, we see that Jesus, uh, the resurrected now reigning king, has commissioned his followers to take the message of forgiveness and new life in him to the ends of the earth. So he has sent them off on this mission. And soon they discover, however, that this mission isn't just for those Uh, who are of Jewish background. It's actually, they come to find that God's mission is to the whole of humanity, to make us one people in Christ. And that includes Gentiles or non-Jewish people as well. And so in Acts 10, we saw that God had to get Peter's attention and required divine intervention for him to step over Um, the the really serious prejudices that he had, to see that God doesn't show favoritism. And so Gentiles are now shown to be um, a part of, welcomed into God's uh, salvation life. So there's this major shift in the story that's happened. Now fast forward about 10 years. Uh, There's a guy named Paul who's on the scene now. Others are working with him and he's preaching that there is a free gift of salvation through trust in Jesus. It's by grace, through faith, that we're saved. That's what Paul is preaching. And, and, and some are thinking, 
Well, maybe it was okay when there was just a few, you know, Gentile families coming into the people of God, but now there's this flood of them, and they're, what do we do with that? So there's that question that, that we bump up against with. And so we pick up in the city of Antioch, where the church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and lots of Gentiles now. They've come through the door of faith. They're part of the community of God. So let's open up uh, in Acts chapter 15 and begin reading. It begins by describing the problem. Here's what it says. Certain people came down from Judea. That's the area where Jerusalem is, and they're actually going north to Antioch. And they were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Did you catch that? You can't be saved, they're saying. Now, now saved, if you're unfamiliar with that language, that means that our, our sin or our rebellion against God, our self-centeredness and all the fallout and garbage that results, our sins forgiven. The divide between us and the, and the one true holy God, that divide is overcome. We can be accepted now as God's dearly loved children. That's available. So this changes both our identity and our eternal destiny. It places us in relation to God and God's people, the church. It means an everlasting inheritance, life in God's world made new forevermore. And now you have a group of people saying to the Gentile believers, sorry, no, it's impossible for you to be saved unless you take on the Jewish practices, including circumcision. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Yes, you see, there are some issues that require a firm and unapologetic no. Let's keep reading. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Notice, though, they don't try to settle the dispute by themselves on their own terms. Far too much is at stake. This had to be decided at the highest level and with the whole church unified around it. For, as F.F. Bruce, one scholar, says, there was grave danger of a complete cleavage between the churches of Jerusalem and Judea on the one hand and the churches of Antioch and her daughter churches on the other. So the unity of the, of the whole church is at stake here. And please note, there are times when conflict on some matters is actually necessary to clarify what really unites us as God's people. Said differently, disagreement doesn't necessarily mean disunity. There are some disagreements that are clarifying what is actually core, what matters most, in order to unify the church. And often, you know, it's those moments where we're really pushed on what we believe. Those are the moments, whether it's internally, like from other believers, or externally, like our faith is being questioned for those who don't share it. Those times where things are questioned are when the, the greatest clarity comes. We search the scriptures. It drives us to look into what the church throughout the ages has taught and believed on this question. We can look into books and otherwise people in our community who've given themselves to study these questions. 
And so the church, we see, is ready to examine the most important of questions. What's our take home? Well, I think we need to see that this is not, you know, like unity at any cost. Like, it doesn't matter what the truth is so long as we're together. No, there really are some questions, essentials of the faith, like how we're saved, that are crucial to address with clarity as the church is about to do here. So sometimes disagreement is necessary to protect the unity of the church around the essentials. Now, verse 3, the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. But notice this, it says, this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, yes, there are Christian people who are, you know, from the Pharisees. Paul himself was one of them. They stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Verse 6, the apostles and elders meant, met to consider this question. What is the question? The question is, how are people saved? I mean, that's the central question in this text, but really, it's the central question, period. In fact, it's the question at the center of all history. For everybody has to answer this set of questions, like, where do we come from? And, and like, why are we here anyways? Not only that, like, what's wrong with the world? Why do we hurt so much? And what's the solution? And, and where is history heading? Like, is there any hope for us? The Christian faith claims to have answers to all of those questions. And the question, what's the solution? Like, how are people saved? What could put us back together again? That's the issue we're all desperately searching for, if we're really honest. Like, is there hope for me to be changed? To be loved even as I am with my past and everything? Can I really experience a relationship with the Almighty God? Can I really have hope for life like without evil around in the very presence of God or is death simply the end of us? Just before we jump into the church and how it answers that question, some of you might be thinking, Pharisees? <laughs> well, yes, these were people who came to put their trust in Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, but they didn't give up on their practice of keeping the Mosaic law. However, in their view, the Gentiles also needed to do the same. They needed to be converted to Judaism and, and those practices. It was Jesus plus circumcision and law observance. So what's the answer the church gives? Verse 7, after much discussion, and just stop, because that's really important. There was time for discussion, much discussion we read. There was real wrestling over the question. We live in a moment, as I pointed out at the beginning, where real honest conversation about important topics seems like it's almost impossible to have in a civil way. Not so with those who follow Jesus. Much discussion. That's how the church operated from the beginning, and it really must today, too. 
much discussion, though, it requires patient love. It requires listening. It requires humility because we might actually end up changing our minds. It requires considering all the other perspectives before drawing final conclusions. It does what we read in James 1, 19 to 20. We read this instruction. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. See, that's what's being practiced here. Only after much discussion do we see conclusions emerge. So let's listen in. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter points back to that episode in in Acts chapter 10, where God affirmed his choice, his uh, acceptance of the Gentiles by having the Holy Spirit come and enabling them to speak in tongues, a, a very phenomenological outward sign that they really had the Spirit. And Peter makes clear that he did not discriminate between them and us, for he purified their hearts by faith. It's clear that it's by faith alone. These Gentiles, they brought nothing but their trust in Jesus. And God accepts them on those terms. And then Peter points out, he says, both Jew and Gentile, we are both accepted simply by Jesus plus nothing. See, the term legalism, well, that's exactly to this point. This is often a point of misunderstanding, though. See, legalism doesn't mean I want to please God by living lined up with what he's asked of us morally and spiritually through the scriptures, through the teaching of Jesus. See, a person who wants to be obedient to what God has asked based on God's prior grace in their life, that's not a legalist, that's a faithful Christ follower. Saying that simple trust in Jesus alone for our salvation is not enough that's legalism. Uh, And that group in Antioch and the Pharisees in Jerusalem, that's what they're arguing for. I think there are legalistic tendencies, however, that could begin to creep into our hearts, and it would be well for us to take notice of them before they grow. This could be particularly apparent in the way the legalists in, in Antioch and the Pharisees in Jerusalem, that how they approach this issue they seem completely unwilling to notice how God has just done something amazing in the presence of Gentiles. When the church in Samaria and Phoenicia, when they hear of how the Gentiles have responded in faith to Jesus, it says they're filled with joy. They celebrate it. And there's no indication in the text here that these legalists were celebrating what God was doing. There was no joy among them. And that's something that we need to be aware of in our hearts. These legalists were also, they were keen to push their convictions on to others and make these convictions a point of condemnation. You cannot be saved unless, that's what they said. We would do well to watch if there are any ways where we might be tempted 
to enslave others and their consciences because of convictions that we hold on non-essential issues. And I had a conversation with a, a person who just needed to kind of like debrief with me. Uh, this was um, a friend of mine, a man who was applying for a job in pastoral ministry. And the job interview was going well. Uh, they started talking about what the person believed about the Bible. And he replied with a classic evangelical high view of Scripture. He said that the Bible is true and trustworthy in everything it teaches. It's our guide in all matters of faith and life. He didn't, however, use the sort of words and language that the hiring church tended to use. Uh, to be fair, there was a legitimate difference between how my friend in this church um, described how God's authority works through the Bible. The problem, I want to point out, though, came when the pastor of the hiring church, he didn't just end the interview and say, hey, thanks so much for your time, but he went on to suggest that this faithful follower of Jesus might not be a Christian because he differed on the way he viewed the doctrine of Scripture. That's legalism. It's Jesus plus something else. In this case, it was Jesus plus a particular sort of really narrow strip of um, a brand of in inerrancy. This friend of mine walked away feeling like he had been condemned. And that was really heartbreaking to hear. And so I heartily reminded him of what the gospel really is. Not that he had forgotten, but he felt the weight of, of being condemned, actually. And it was my job to lift off of his shoulders what was simply untrue. Here in our text, not only does Peter offer his view about salvation, that something new really happened through Jesus, which it did, he turns to offer actually a significant challenge to the legalists. Listen to verse 10. Now then, why do you test God? And wow, that's a big critique. Testing God is a grievous sin listed in Deuteronomy 6, 16. And he says, why do you test God? By putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke, meaning a teaching, a way of life, a set of requirements that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Now, maybe you're listening today and you've never heard this before or never really understood it for yourself. Maybe you heard something or thought something like, well, I guess good people will go to heaven. Good people are saved. But the question becomes like, how good do you have to be to be welcomed and accepted by God, a perfect and holy God? And then the follow-up question is like, how would you even know if you've made that requirement? What Peter is preaching here is good news. And the good news is this, it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved. Grace means kindness. It's linked to the word gift. Like a gift is given, it's not something that we earn, but something that we simply receive that someone who loves us gives us. That's how new life comes to us. It's not something we earn because we couldn't, in fact. Peter says, like, requirements of the law, we couldn't bear that either. We are saved by grace too. 
One songwriter put it like this. I really like this. He said, now this is more than I could ask for, more than I could dream. The one who made the world somehow thinks the world of me. The highest king of heaven chose to love a fool. I don't understand it, but I know I want nothing more than you. Man, the weight of all of our failings and failures falls off our shoulders when we let the gift of God's grace wash into our hearts, purify us, make us new. And it's this love and grace that motivates us now to live lives of obedience and love to God. We work from acceptance, not for it. This is open now, as Peter says, to all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ plus nothing else. It is by grace that you're saved through faith. Let's keep listening in. Verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that means Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet, the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. Now he's quoting from Amos. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. This is my judgment, therefore, James says, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, there are some really key features that we need to see here. Not just what the decision is, but how they get there. You see, how James and the church come to this question is fascinating. James and and those around him, they are learning to read the Bible backwards, you might say. See, they're, they're coming to read the Bible in light of the coming of Jesus, of his death, his resurrection, and now the coming of the Spirit. This is God's action in history. It's the new foundational moment of salvation. And so now, that, now they read the Old Testament, but they do so through the, the lens of the cross of Jesus and what he has accomplished. See, the interpretive red lens that they're using is actually the one that Jesus himself gives them. In Luke 24, we read about this conversation Jesus is having with, with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize who he is yet, but he says this to them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So the Hebrew Bible leading up to the climactic event of Jesus, that's what it leads to. And now it points forward to the ongoing work of the Spirit, of Jesus through the Spirit in the church. So James reads Amos, and he sees how Jesus is making it possible for the new temple to be established. And as I mentioned in the first two messages of our series, 
Uh, the new temple isn't a physical building. Don't go looking for stone and brick and mortar. No, the new temple, as described in the New Testament, is the very people of God, the one people of God formed together, indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. It's a multi-ethnic community, Jew and Gentile, together, one people. And that is actually what's at stake in this moment. Will the true gospel of Jesus be embraced? Will the mission move forward without requiring Gentiles to first become Jewish? So from this quote, James makes clear that Gentiles can simply be Christians, Christ followers, without having to take up the Mosaic law regulations. But then how does this new temple, this new people of God, Jew and Gentile, how are they going to live and worship in unity? Here's where the instruction James offers comes in. First, really the Jewish Christians need to accept Gentile believers as their family in Christ and not harass them about circumcision or law-keeping as a condition for salvation, because it's not. Second, how are the Gentiles, how are they to relate to the Jewish law and their Jewish sisters and brothers? Well, James lists four things. Uh, he says instead of making life difficult for Gentile believers, he says we should write to them, and they do, they send a letter on, it, telling them to abstain from food-polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood, meaning like eating blood. <laughs> okay, what do we do with that now? There are a number of different interpretations of this, as you can well imagine. I can remember my, my grandma, um, she was worried about whether we needed to cook our steaks to well done, like no blood in them, based on this text. And man, I love that she was willing to do whatever the Lord was saying through this text of Scripture, even if it wasn't delicious. <laughs> so she models the posture that I pray we as a church would all have. And that's been one way this text has been read. A, a word that's still, you know, woodenly true for us in every sense today. But we need to pay attention to what James is saying in its original setting and, and the reasons for it. I can remember talking with my grandma about this, and I, I wasn't quite sure that it was about how we cooked our meat today. And now I'm more convinced than ever that this, this isn't about following uh, Jewish food laws for us in the present. Notice James first mentions abstaining from food that's been polluted by idols or that's been sacrificed to idols, okay? Now, sacrificing meat in a pagan ceremony before selling it, that was common practice in the Greco-Roman world. Then James mentions two other food-related issues, meat that's been strangled, okay, and blood. And let me tell you, I, I don't think it was that easy to avoid food that was sacrificed to idols. And that's why Paul will go on to kind of enter into the debate that's happening in the city of Corinth among believers there. And he talks about this, like, food that's been offered to idols and what to do about it because it seems like it's an ongoing debate and challenge for the church to do this. So, the question is, why these instructions? Why this meat? Is James trying to say that Gentile Christians really do have to follow Mosaic food laws? No, I really don't think so. I think he says it for two reasons. First, 
I really think this could disrupt the faith of other believers who don't have the same sense of a freedom of conscience about what they eat. That's what Paul concludes in his writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and Romans 14 and 15 when it comes to having meals with others, to table fellowship. Because you see, in the ancient world, the table, that's the place where you know that you belong. It signals that you're home when you're sitting at the table with others. And if you can't gather around the table and eat because you feel fine eating one thing, but your guest really doesn't, I think James is kind of saying, like, just find something else to eat. And that's exactly what they need to do. And, And James gives that reason in the final verse of this section. He says this, the law of Moses is preached in every city uh, on the Sabbath. Um, So Gentile Christians, they are going to do these things because there was a widespread law-observing population of Jews in the surrounding areas. And he wants them to minimize unnecessary offenses and open doors for real Christian witness to them so that they can come to know Christ and also fellowship with them, which is most beautifully pictured at the table. The other reason, I think, is because the issue of how meat was treated was linked up to other idolatrous practices too. And I think for these new Gentile believers, it could blur the lines between their old life with its idolatrous, like idol-worshiping pagan practices, and their new life in Christ. And so James is protecting them. See, notice that second one he mentions, avoid sexual immorality. Part of reading the Bible backwards, you might say, through the lens of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, is that we see that there are issues and areas in the Old Testament law that do still apply, as well as those that do not. And the issue of sexual immorality is something that Jesus continued to reaffirm in his teaching. Now, what does that mean? Well, sexual immorality is any sexual practices that go beyond what is consistently taught throughout the scriptures, reaffirmed by Jesus. That sex is, is only to be practiced within the context of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Anything other than that, well, it needs to be confessed. And we receive forgiveness for those places. Then a change needs to happen. See, Jesus said to a woman who was caught in adultery that he didn't condemn her. And he doesn't condemn you or me either. What a relief. But then he says to that woman and to us, go and sin no more. That's needed too, a real change in behavior. So why does James add this to the list? Well, first, this is an area that damages Christian witness when we don't live consistently with it. When Christians are called hypocrites in our world today, that's often because people do know the Christian sexual ethic and then they see believers disregarding it. That was true then, and unfortunately, it's true now too. Second, this is an area that would be easy for Christian people to get sucked back into, to compromise on. Perhaps James highlights this issue along with the other idolatrous food practices because within the Greco-Roman world, uh, their temple worship would include, well, temple prostitution. That was a part of the whole ceremony. And so James just wants them to stay clear of all of it. 
He wants to ensure that the Gentile Christians don't do anything that will jeopardize their newfound faith in Jesus and their witness to the world around them or their relationship with other Jewish Christians. So what can we take from this? Number one, avoiding sexual immorality, that's a must for us. I've described that enough, but what about the food piece? Well, perhaps the question for us today is, are there practices that might keep Christians divided? Are there ways that we can prioritize relationships, even when we might have convictions that differ with others? I mean, that maybe goes back to some of those things I brought up at the beginning. Maybe there's... uh, convictions about how we see the world or particular uh, non-essential views that we feel like we're polarized against other believers. How can we work against that? How can we pull together and just say, what does the Bible teach on these issues? How can we be patient and listening and loving each other? Uh, Can we put aside areas where we feel freedom in order to make table fellowship a reality? to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. See, being a truly multi-ethnic, like multicultural community, that's going to require a willingness not to push certain non-essential convictions that might divide us onto others. So the question would be, are we willing to swallow our pride about some things that we maybe hold dear in order to create space for togetherness? Even if we know these are areas that we're totally free in. The last thing is this, missionary faithfulness looks like reducing barriers whenever and whenever possible. In Acts 15, we saw that the church says essentially Jesus plus nothing equals everything we need for salvation. Circumcision isn't necessary for salvation, we saw that. But then it's so funny because Acts 16, it actually picks up by introducing Timothy as this young man whose dad is Greek and his mom is Jewish and everyone around kind of knows it. Uh, he's been growing in his faith, he's been active in ministry, and Paul wants to take him along on the next mission. And then, well, Paul has Timothy circumcised. And we go, what on earth? And, ouch. Uh, but see, this, this isn't about Timothy's salvation. It's about prioritizing the mission. They're going into Jewish territory, they will continue to offer salvation to Jewish people, How do they reduce unnecessary conflict? Well, that's actually one way. So the question is, how do they make those decisions? And how do we make our decisions? We may have some dear convictions on certain matters. Okay. But are there ways that we're holding these convictions that serve your witness or not? Pastor Colton said it like this in our staffing. He said, many people hold to their conviction in ways that ruin their witness. And unfortunately, that's really true. So in our text today, we see that the church has this laser-like precision about the most important thing. We are saved by faith in Jesus. It is by grace that we are accepted, and His grace alone. Jesus plus nothing is our everything. But then we also see this radical flexibility in reducing unnecessary barriers for the sake of witness and for the sake of connectedness. Are we willing, like Paul and Timothy, to prioritize faithfulness to Jesus and his mission over how we might hold certain convictions? For you see, Jesus, though he had everything and every right, 
he put his rights to the side in order to pursue us, to make us his own. When we know that he loves us like that, and when I came to recognize it and embrace it for myself, man, my heart became softer and softer to the things of God and more and more passionate about making his news known to others. So may we be a people, be a community who are caught up in the joy of being saved by the radical free grace of Jesus. And may that lead us into a deeper and richer love for one another. The willingness to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and a greater passion to share this hope of Jesus with a world that is desperately in need. I pray that that would be true. And let's pray now. Jesus, I thank you that you gave it all for us. And that you model now for us what it looks like to give up our rights or our preferences for the sake of community and togetherness. Even for the sake of, uh, or especially for the sake of our witness to the world around us. And we thank you so much for the church that they stood by the, the convictions that really mattered. The central issues. Thank you that we are welcomed simply by trusting in your grace. And that as our hearts are melted by your love, it leads us to want to live in ways that are obedient and loving to you and others. Obedient to you and loving toward others. And we pray these things now in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.